I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thanks so much to Andrew for really 20 years of, uh, of amazing dialogues because we met exactly 20 years ago when um, I co-curated this exhibition with my colleague Huhan Ru on Asian cities at the Hayward Gallery. Uh, it was called Cities on the Move. And um, actually Fiona Bradley, who um, was the uh, organizing curator on the Hayward side at the time, uh, said there is someone you should know. Uh, we've got an amazing young writer in residence, uh, and uh, Fiona, like me, is very close friends with Douglas Gordon. She said, he's a close friend of Douglas Gordon. You have to meet Andrew O'Hagan. So that was the first meeting, and uh, Andrew wrote an amazing text for our catalogue, uh, Cities on the Move. But then, more or less at the same time, also a very little known, very early collaboration with Douglas Gordon. That's actually the first thing I wanted to ask you, Andrew, because... I suppose no one really knows this text. It's kind of a secret. Yeah. And uh, it sort of connects to the secret life. It does. People keep telling me that the, my association with Julian Assange was the first ever piece of ghostwriting, but actually that's not true. There was a secret bit of ghostwriting many, many years ago where Douglas Gordon, who had a solo show on at the Hayward, came to me, well, called me, I think, in the middle of the night and said... Um, as he tends to do. And he said, I really want to write a fiction about my life, but I don't know how to do that. Um, so you could write it. And we discussed this. Um, Fiona Bradley was uh, very keen to have it. Um, so I wrote a, a story about a monstrous uh, individual in Glasgow in search of his creativity. And it became a book that was published by the Hayward at that time, short book. Um, and everybody thought it was written by Douglas Gordon but it wasn't written by Douglas, it was written by me. Um, so it was a brief introduction to the world of ghostwriting about 20 years ago. And can you tell us a little bit more about this secret text? Well, not really, because I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't remember it that well. Um, I don't know what kind of state I was in in the 90s. Um, it was a nice time in the 90s, as Douglas will tell you. And we were all quite... Uh, we, were, we stayed up late a lot, you know, in the 90s. Um, and sometimes we wrote into the night in the nineties. So I've never actually looked at this text again. Maybe I should as uh, you know homework. I remember it being a bit erratic and a little bit um, excitable as a piece of prose. But I will revisit it soon and come back with a report. And it, of course, was also based on conversations with Douglas. Douglas always told me that you had many talks 
Um, so I was kind of wondering if you can talk a little bit about the practice, you know, in a way this is a, an interview here and it's kind of like, you know, there could be a kind of a meta interview within the interviews. I wanted to interview you about interviews. Uh, and I think we both have a, the same hero in terms of, of interviews. And that's, that's Turkle, because when I started to do my, you know, recording of artists' interviews, I thought I need to go and learn from the master and I went to Chicago. Uh, and the first thing Stats told me is, you know, it's really good to be bad at these recording devices because if the camera falls down or the recording device falls down, it's reassuring for the person being interviewed. So, <laughs> so that was one piece of advice. It gave me a whole list of other advice. I was wondering what you learned from Stats Turk. I loved him. I just straightforwardly loved him. I went to Chicago in 1996. Uh, my first book, The Missing, had just been published. And... I just had a humiliating experience on uh, Good Morning America. I think it was called that, or Good Morning Chicago, maybe. Which, uh, I don't know if any of you ever watch these shows, but they're hilarious, hilariously bad, I mean. And it was, I think it was the first ever TV interview I had done. And it was, there was these two TV anchors, these two men. And you know the way people, especially in the United States, I find, can be so handsome they're ugly? <laughs> these two men were of that kind of appearance it seemed to me it was very early in the morning as well and I'd borrowed a suit from a friend and I was feeling a bit ragged but anyway uh, what I remember is that these two men with incredibly blue eyes were staring at me and they I remember them counting down three two one and doing that and then these two men proceeded to interview me at length about uh, somebody else's book <laughs> um, live so it was quite difficult of course, um, I learned something about myself that morning, which is that I didn't mind that much. And uh, as you might hope, I gave full answers to all their questions about somebody else's book. Um, somebody had written a book about their grandfather. It was nobody I'd heard of before, so I didn't have much help. I mean, it's not like they interviewed me about Philip Roth's last book, which, you know, would have been, you know, I'd got off to a decent start with that. But this was some sort of sentimental book somebody had written about their grandfather. I didn't know my grandfathers. They were both dead by the time I was born, but that didn't stop me in any sense. Um, and I managed to turn every question into a sort of answer about some, of something that I might like to talk about. These guys didn't notice. Do you know what their second question was? The first question was, you must have been pretty proud of your grandfather. <laughs> to which I gave, a, a, I think, a 15-minute answer. And then, um, and then the second question was, uh, if you get any advice for the mothers of America... <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's in the archive, but please never show me it. I remember I had a lot of orange makeup on as well. You know, it was. Uh, and that's the same day you met Stud. That was the same day I met Stud. So and I left the studio completely humiliated. You know, 26, very orange-faced um, from the sponge. I remember, and I, I thought, Jesus, I need to go and see Stud Sterko. So I went um, and think, thought, is it always like this in America? Is it? Is, is one to be humiliated at every place you go. But then I went into his studio and it couldn't have been more different. Not only was Studs a legendary interviewer and writer, but he was a brilliant human being. As soon as I went into the room, he said, look at my copy of your book. I'll never forget it. And he picked up, was, the book was called The Missing. As I say, I was 26 or something and completely sort of shattered from this interview that morning. And he just went through the pages like that and every, one, every page was covered in red ink. Every page. And it was a work of art in itself, this copy. I, I wonder what happened to it. Anyway, he was so involved with the subject and he then had a conversation that lasted for an hour and every 10 minutes he'd put a record on. And I tell you, every record was a choice of genius. You know, at one 
point I remember him playing Scottish ballads that not ordinary Scottish ballads, you know, that you just can find anywhere, but really hard to find records about Ayrshire and about people disappearing into the mist and never returning. And then there'd be a song about a shipbuilding song from the 70s and the original track. I mean, he was just a great broadcaster and a wonderful writer and human being. And it really changed my whole attitude to America, actually, after that morning that I'd had. Um, he was just great. And he's obviously the master interviewer he had, I think, at the time when I met him, he had almost like 10,000 hours or something like that. It's an epic oeuvre of interviews. Oh, ask. yeah, he would take you through the archive. There's a little yeah. room and you'd, you'd just put your hand and it'd say James Baldwin. You put your hand again and it would say, you know, you know Nixon. It's just an unbelievable, or Nabokov. I mean, he'd interviewed everybody. Also it's jazz a, and things. Yeah, know, I mean, all, just incredible. So I was kind of wondering about, because of course, um, the book uh, we have here in front of us, The Secret Life, has a lot to do with interviews and you having, you know, conversation, interviewing people. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice as an interviewer when that started and your archive? You must have an immense archive. I have got a big archive, but the I realized only the other day that my technique, such as it is, so haphazard really, but it's very much like that first interview with Good Morning Chicago where I've got what Keats called negative capability. So everything can be going on in the room, but I've managed to disappear slightly into the wallpaper um, or answer questions that aren't quite to do with me or sort of uh, somehow send my ego on holiday completely. When I think about the Assange months, I mean, in a house in Norfolk in the dead of winter with very strong personalities, to say the least. And I realised that, well, it was quite good, actually. People didn't ask you questions. You know, they weren't interested in asking other people questions. But I receded into the wallpaper so effectively that they kind of forgot I was there. So that's what the Scotsman means when they call you a quiet interviewer. I think so. I mean, I remember something Joan Didion said years ago. Uh, she said that I tend to fold into myself so completely in an interview situation uh, where she's interviewing people that uh, the people she's interviewing uh, forget that her instincts might run counter to their interests. And I suppose I remember that, and I think it's true. I mean, there is a sort of sleight of hand, as Janet Malcolm famously told us, in the interview situation, in the journalistic setup. Although these, uh, these pieces actually didn't, they didn't start as journalistic pieces. They started, uh, especially in the Sanj case, that was really, uh, I was helping him write his book. So I was supposed to be invisible. It suited me very well to be invisible. I insisted from the beginning, despite what newspapers said and still say, I had insisted from the beginning that my name never be on the cover or on the copyright page or indeed mentioned in any of the publicity. I was interested in the technical, I suppose, journalistic excitement of trying to play with the form, trying to write somebody's life, a true life, using all your capacities as a novelist. And I wanted to see if that could be done. That's why I said yes to that job. And the other ones too didn't start off as pieces. But when I stepped back, it took me three years to think about writing about these, uh, about that character, the first one, because I felt concerned for him. I didn't want to damage his case. I thought by that point he was an enemy to himself. So um, I did wait. But eventually I returned to first base, which is as a writer, and I had the material. Quite but I was actually thinking before we talk about these different, you know, uh, pieces in the, in the book, because when I when I read the book, it made me think of of the missing in a way. There is a connection to the missing. So I was kind of wondering if you can tell me a little bit what was the epiphany at the time when you, at the very beginning of your trajectory, wrote this book and what, who were your heroes, who were your influences? 
Well, certainly Studs Terkel was at the time of the missing, but um, so were a lot of those, I thought, gods of non-fiction writing, you know, all those people whose names everybody knows. I loved those Americans, all those Truman Capotes and John Didions. I loved the seriousness they brought to non-fiction. I couldn't believe that um, they saw no distinction between the quality of uh, writing based on real material. Uh, I, I put my hands up like that now because we're living through the age when you can't bandy the word real around with any sort of innocence anymore. But certainly reported material could be written uh, written up with a passion and a devotion and with a style uh, among those writers. Truman Capote, obviously, famously. Norman Mailer, I always loved, and I went to see him a few times in Provincetown and in New York. I loved his daring. Um, he took a lot of, you know, stick for his efforts at Norman. Also, he was celebrated too. But to me, he was just a fantastic artist when it came to judging how, in terms of pace, plot, structure, music, how to write about invented and non-invented material. He made no distinction. There was no hierarchy for him. And I've always liked writers uh, who despised the hierarchy and would write as well if they were writing a short story as they would if they were writing a postcard. And I think that if, you, if your ambition is to write well, you don't turn that off. I mean, you don't deliberately write badly at any time. It would be a sort of offence and I, I imagine I learned quite a lot of that from them. But it's interesting because the late Gustav Metzger, whom we have to remember here, who passed away earlier this year in his early 90s, the amazing visionary London-based artist, he always said all the great inventions we attribute to the 60s were actually made, in a way, in the 50s. And mm. there is a book by Kaplan called 1959, which uh, Mailer plays a key role in that. Uh, Gustav always uh, you know, encouraged me to read and quote it. And you said something very similar. You said, in a way, when um, some, um, I think it was after September 11th, and you said, you know, how difficult it is for literature to find words, you, you, you sort of said, in 56, there were all these writers, Mary McCarthy, Norman Mailer, James Baldwin, James Tyron, Elizabeth Howick, you know, Trilling, and so on. Um, and uh, you said, on the one hand, they uh, had the balls, but also they had the audience. Can mm. you tell us a little bit about it? It seems very interesting, in a way, that late 50s moment came to my mind when you mentioned Mailer, no? Well, the, those names that you mentioned, I mean, they're particularly American. You could make a list for here, to, you know, you could argue, you know, the Cyril Connolly world, the Horizon world. Um, there was a time, certainly, you know, let's just talk about those Americans, because in a sense it's easier. They could take for granted the relationship between high culture and politics. They absolutely took it for granted. They felt that a very great novel or a great piece of reporting was in touch with the spirit of the age, the political moment, in a way that they were driven by and driven towards. Whereas I think a lot of writers now uh, would struggle to feel that they are connected to the political moment. Many of my colleagues in fiction and non-fiction constantly express a sense of dissociation from uh, the political moment, from political structures. If you look at the case, for example, just to choose an example almost randomly of Bobby Kennedy, the rise of Bobby Kennedy and the story of Bobby Kennedy and the thinking of Bobby Kennedy is deeply studied, you might say, with the intellectual fervor of the time. Although he wasn't particularly a literary guy, I mean, he would have described himself that way, yet he would have known who Lionel Trilling was. He would have read the liberal imagination and had a view about how the best thinkers in the country might impact on the future development of politics, of race relations, uh, of civil rights, certainly, and of the whole sort of series of existential provocations which existed at that time, that these, uh, 
I remember Norman Mailer telling me once when he met Jack Kennedy for the first time, he said he knew Jack Kennedy was a brilliant politician. I said, why? He said, because he praised the novel of mine, which had been least praised by the critics. <laughs> so that's pure politics. But even the idea that, that Theresa May will have read the most interesting third novel or the most panned third novel by one of our even senior novelists, I don't think so. And that connection... Hmm? Well, Obama would have, and that was an interesting moment again. That, I mean, it was so exciting because Obama was clearly a reader, clearly an intellectual, and, certainly, could, and, and could write well. And the new French you know, Minister of Culture would have, because France yeah. has a publisher now, a yeah. Minister of Culture. That's so maybe it's not tied to, to, to historical time as much as just to you know, culture and, uh, and personality. If you look for the right personality, if you vote in the right person, then there will be somebody who can establish or is ambition, ambitious to establish a relationship between high ideas and ideals and political uh, movement. Uh, but I think it's, it was something that was taken for granted in the period that we were talking about with Hardwick and the setting up of the New York Review and um, even the setting up of the London Review. I think there was very much an understanding that great writers could have an influence on replenishing the imagination of the populace. And I was a lot uh, spending time during the years I lived in Paris with Alain Robb-Grier, who, of course, was that same generation, you know, as Norman Mailand, one of the fathers of the Nouveau Roman. And uh, Robb-Grier talked a lot about that as well. He talked about this idea of being most advanced, yet acceptable, that one could do hyper-experimental work, but have a big readership. But he also talked about this idea that he kind of used, you know, long-form essays uh, and then just would sort of make them into books, but magazines would commission him to do these long-form kind of essays. And one thing which I thought was very interesting and brings us then somehow to the book is that these are three long-form essays mm. and they basically all are about the digital age. Mm. And you know, we, we're doing this mapping of the generation of artists born after 89. We see Mocasta, so we've got so for more than 10,000 you know, artists mapped in this project of that generation. One of the interesting things we found out is that there is a lot of connections again from the visual arts to poetry. There is an amazing new poetry generation emerging. But it's, it's more short text. There isn't really in the digital age so much kind of long-form essays. And in a way, you seem to almost like find the survival of the long-form essay in the digital age. I wanted to ask you. Well, I've been quite lucky and I've, I've been associated all my career with a magazine, with the London Review of Books. Here we are in the, the shop that is attached to the LRB. And they have been in the business since 1979 of publishing long-form essays. And uh, I was a fan of the paper before I worked at the paper and before I wrote for it. Uh, and I've been writing for it now um, for uh, 25 years or so. It was a godsend to me because I believe that the essay as a form is one of the great literary forms. Uh, I say that without hesitation. That I think it's the most light conversation. I might have said poetry once upon a time, but actually I feel that the essay, a certain kind of essay particularly, its gentle didactic nature, its humour, um, its give and take, its two-mindedness, I think the great essays are two-minded. They're not strident. Political columnists are one thing. And sometimes there's a confusion. And sometimes I'm caught up in that confusion that I've written strident pieces, strident essays. I mean, I wrote about the Daily Mail recently and I have been inundated with uh, responses to that. But, um, and that certainly was not shy of saying what, what it thought. But, but it's not the same as a newspaper column because I think an essay is open to the possibility uh, that other people will also have a reasoned, possibly elegant, possibly upsetting, possibly circumventing 
point of view. And the great Essie tradition, such as, is maintained uh, like nowhere in the world, in my view, like it is by the London Review of Books. There's a reason why it's become the best-selling literary publication in Europe, because it has steadily made itself indispensable as the site of conversation of a high-level sort. At a time when the political discussion is quite degraded, if I can suggest, you know, that in, again, to throw missiles at the politicians, I do think we're living through quite low times when it comes to political discourse. It's quite degraded. The way people don't, they don't fight for ideas and they don't express ideas. They politic in a small way. And we witness again and again politicians who couldn't string a sentence together, as far as I can see, um, changing their position absolutely shamelessly on subjects as big as Brexit or their sense of the makeup of the country, um, their sense of empathy for the people who live in this country. No consistency, no ideas, uh, no, no beauty of thought coming from that quarter for a long time. So even more so, I think publications like the LRB have their moment to perform a, an international task. So I was lucky to fall among them quite young and learn so much from them. I always was conscious of it being a tradition that uh, I think it's one of the great traditions, the English tradition of the essay and the American tradition too, is one of the great literary traditions that exists. And I don't know what it would be like to, to live in a world where that form, because the novel's one thing and we could talk about that another time, but the essay actually, I think, I mentioned before replenishing the imagination. I think if you, when I look at the great essayists, I think of them as people who constantly replenished your sense of wonder, your sense of what's possible, where you were actually alerted, you sort of jumped out of your chair when they said something that seems to you not only true, but was always true and you were waiting for somebody to say it. They were the essayists I grew up with and I just adored them. And to talk about the essays in the book, in The Secret Life, one of the three uh, essays is actually the one which appears least in the reviews of the book. And so I think, for me, it's actually fascinating because it's from the three essays, the, the, the only one where actually the protagonist didn't come to you. Because yeah. in the two other cases, the protagonist actually came to you. It wasn't the case for Ronald Pinn. And, mm. uh, it was, you wrote it for the long review of books, and uh, it's a creation, Ronald Pinn sort of had the search to pursue this character. So I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about the epiphany of Ronald Pinn. How did this idea came to you? And well, you know, as many of you who are writers here know, when you write professionally, you're an inveterate note taker. I, I sort of wake up in the morning with sentences to write down and uh, with things to investigate. And I remember hearing a few years ago about this practice of the Metropolitan Police taking the names of dead children off gravestones in London in building what they called a legend around these names, of furnishing this fake identity, if you like, uh, with a grounding in reality. The grounding being that this person did have a birth certificate. They may be dead, but they had parents. They had a place they came from. And that somehow made the lie that they were about to tell sort of deeper. When I heard that story, I felt, as you sometimes do as a writer, that it chimed with something all the way inside for me. You know, I had been writing, writing about missing persons and self-invention even before the days of the internet. And the internet created a conditions of bonanza for self-invention as part of my argument in this book, is that we're living through what you might call a golden period um, of self-invention, where Facebook themselves admit that they have upwards of 68 million fake accounts. People are investing in other selves every day, being other, 
Um, so otherness was always an interest of mine, but when I heard this story about these policemen, they were then infiltrating left-wing groups with these fake identities. Some of them actually married people as their fake selves, but they already had wives elsewhere under their own selves. So, I mean, if you've got the right kind of antennae uh, or the right kind of mental sickness, as I have, that becomes obsessively interesting. And I realized that there was a moral horror at the center of it that I would have to slightly climb inside if I was really going to bring the readers the proper insight into how easy is it to be somebody else? How easy is it to take a dead person's name and build a viable identity? Can you get passports? Can you get driver's licenses? Can you buy drugs? Can you go on the internet and be a person who's followed and who has relationships? How far can you go? And so I'm afraid I climbed all the way inside that particular moral conundrum and went as far as I could go until it looked like I might be arrested. <laughs> I still think I might be <laughs> over this. But right up to the point where I thought it's actively demonic to go any further, by which point my invented Ronald Pinn had all those documents I mentioned before. He was operating wildly on the dark internet, buying every drug you can think of. They were all being delivered to a flat that I rented in Islington under his name. Um, he had a tax number. He had conversations and strings of conversations going all over the place on the internet. I don't mind telling you that when I first started that project, I put the, the words Ronald Pin into a popular search engine, as we say on TV, <laughs> and it came up with precisely nothing. By the end of the process, I put his name in, and it came up with thousands. They were all to do with the fake Ronnie Pin. So, ironically, as I'd always suspected, and heartbreakingly, the fake Ronnie Pin's imprint on the world was almost infinitely larger than the boy who died in 1980 in South London, whose, whose remains are lying in a graveyard. I thought it told us something about the metaphysics of our time, if that's not pushing it too far. Certainly, that's how I felt about it. And I felt if I could only write that story and find the sentences and paragraphs, then it might be a new piece of writing uh, that would be right eventually for this book. And so, as you see, they didn't come to me, I came to it. But ironically, it was the one that was living inside me the longest. Assange, you know, came out of the blue. I'm not a computer nerd. I've never been particularly interested in the hacking world, but I was an admirer of WikiLeaks and I fell into that world at their invitation. And Satoshi Nakamoto or Craig Wright the purported Satoshi, came to me also. But Ronnie lived in me before I ever went to that graveyard. And when I saw his name in the graveyard, there was an epiphany. There was a moment of recognition for me, just that weird thing that happens in writing where I realized that there was a morally dubious journey was about to begin and that I was driving it. We've been talking a lot lately together. We, uh the meeting we had with uh, Ben Vickers and Claude Antri, you, you and myself, and several other, you know, writers and, and thinkers, you know, uh, brainstorming about the, the next uh, uh, Serpentine Marathon, mm -hmm. about, you know, technology and ghosts. And I was kind of wondering, you know, related to this figure of Ronald Pin, there is, of course, a very ghostly aspect in it. Can you talk a little bit about that, the ghost, yeah, the I host? Mean, yeah, I mean, I've always felt that that relationship between writer and subject shouldn't be taken for granted, even in journalism, or perhaps in the era of Donald Trump, especially in journalism. 
the idea that the writer is a sort of diviner of truth and that there is a truth there to be divined and there are personalities there who represent uh, facts and that through an interviewing process or a process of, sort of getting to know the situations you can then offer the reader a slice of pure reality. I think we've come into company with odd times and they've been coming for quite a while. At the time when I wrote The Missing, which was in 1996, it was already obvious that something was happening in society which allowed eight of those 13 women to go missing and nobody reported them as missing. That was new to British society, that you could have girls, girls in this case, who had partners, they went to schools, they had doctors, they had GPs, they had former teachers, they had parents, they had some, some of them had siblings, and yet when they disappeared, nobody quite noticed, or they didn't notice enough to report them as missing. And when I found that fact out, it was a bit like the seeing Ronald Pin's gravestone. It sort of sent a shudder of recognition through me, and I realised that there was a long journey to come now, trying to write a book that would offer readers a chance to understand that. How did we get to that? What is that thing? To not report people you loved and knew as missing. And all these years later, and it is 20 years later, I'm still looking at ghosts because they were ghosts to me. I remember being in Gloucester. I was very young and uh, I was on the doorstep of, many of you will remember this terrible address, 25 Cromwell Street, which was the address at which Fred and Rosemary West had taken or these girls and the ones they didn't take already lived there, including one of their own children, and they murdered them there. I remember being in that street and just, I didn't know how to be a reporter. I didn't really know how to make uh, a, fi a non-fiction book or any book. But I remember uh, the, my one certainty was to wait and wait. And at the beginning, there was this international media circus going on. There were vans and satellites everywhere. And every day it got smaller and smaller and smaller until there was only me standing talking to this policeman at 25 Cromwell Street. Like weeks later, I was standing there. So I remember um, him saying to me, are you ever going to go home? <laughs> and I said, I can't. And I remember him saying to me, neither can I. And I thought that alone was worth staying for. That we were all haunted by what had happened in that house. It looked so like so many streets we knew. And I think I've always just been taken up by the ill apparent or the fading or the, the ghostly. And so when I was asked to be a ghost, of course, I jumped at it because it completely suited my sense of what writing is anyway. I mean, people, including publishers and friends of mine, expressed shock, saying, you're a novelist, why would you ghost some egomaniac's book? And I said, because it's actually the same core of contemporary life and interest to me as anything I might write. We can still argue about whether that turned out to be true or not, but it was, I would never regret doing that because it was already in my territory. I think every novelist and every poet is a ghostwriter. And to come back to, to Ronald Pin, there is, of course, a presence there, as you said, of the, the dark web. And you said the people now moderating the dark web don't care about the old codes of citizenship and they don't recognize the laws of society. They don't believe the government's occurrences or historical narratives are automatically legitimate, or even that the personalities who appear to run the world are who they say they are. Now, James Bridle, the artist, London-based artist, uh, now, now actually in Athens, he moved to Athens very recently, says that there is a change through the internet of 
citizenship. Because there's, of course, citizenship by, by birth, and there's mm-hmm. a, by, by, how do you call it in English? By, geog- by geographic. Uh, yeah. Mainly in yeah. America, North and South America, you're a citizen if you're born there. And yeah. In Europe, it's more citizenship by, by blood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and James wrote this amazing text where he basically said there is a algorithmic citizenship, mm-hmm. more and more, basically. Absolutely. So, and I was kind of thinking a lot about that when I read the uh, Ronald Pinn mm-hmm. story and also when you describe now that actually his biography on, on the internet is much longer. And also, I mean, he did, on the internet you don't come from anywhere in the former sense. I mean, for a novelist or a non-fiction writer or an essayist to be alive now and not be interested in this is unthinkable from my perspective. You know, everybody's got a right to be interested in what they want to be, but from my perspective, it's just, it's a wholesale redefinition of what it means to be human. That's what's going on at the moment. This algorithmic re-reckoning of what makes you, you. In other words, there's algorithms around you at the moment, mainly to do with your phone, and maybe if you've got a Samsung TV to do with what you do in your house when you think your TV's off, it's actually fake off as uh, a piece of work undertaken by MI5 in relation to, uh, along with the CIA, Weeping Angel it's called. Basically a surveillance technique where they hope to get domestic appliances to spy on you in your own home and that the data would be collected and processed in unison with these security agencies. That's not fantasy, that's not sci-fi, that's not something that Frank Herbert put in a book 40 years ago. That's actually was in the document last, the year before last, that is there now to be read. The WikiLeaks actually released. This algorithmic reckoning of who you are is actually going to tell us in the future how we're living. Every person in this room, there is a sense of you out there, not based on what you've said or written or done and who you married and what your children say about you um, or what your criminal record says about you or what your moral choices are about. It's actually to do with the things you've liked on the internet and the things you've bought. And that's creating a personality for you which can then be represented to you in an increasingly refined form they think. That algorithmic sense of who you are. I mean, we could, we don't want to get lost in this, but I can tell you that part of my research for the Satoshi story involved looking at a lot of the patents coming up in computer science, and nearly all of the ones I found, that's to say a vast majority of those being presented, are to do with artificial intelligence and what it's going, what the law is going to do in relation to robots in a post-humanoid situation. They're talking already about what will it be like to have a completely algorithmic society where you will require software uh, to help you attribute or deny rights to the robots that are cleaning your house. For fiction and non-fiction, that's an incredible moment to be facing. So as an essayist, I mean, I can't, you can't hold me back when it comes to that kind of thing. But, you know, that was, these represent six years worth of work in that form. And so. you mentioned Satoshi, that's the third story mm. uh, in in the book, and I remember we did the exhibition of uh, of Simon Denny, and um, actually Simon Denny was in town and told you about his interest in, in Bitcoin, and uh, and you told him, uh, I remember obviously his conversation that you actually met the person behind Bitcoin, and uh, uh, that was somehow the beginning, the first time I heard about this story, and you yeah. you described the story story of Satoshi Nakamoto as a as a modern day morality tale. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit. What drives me through the months and months and sometimes years of writing these stories is the sense that there's a human problem at the center of it. I'm quite an old-fashioned writer in that way. I'm not a techie writer of the sort of postmodern type, I don't think. I don't know what that would be, but, but I'm not it. 
I'm an old-fashioned writer interested in human problems and interested in the problems of society, to put it that way. Theodore Dreiser, if he was alive now, would be chasing Satoshi Nakamoto down the street. I'm absolutely convinced. If George Orwell was alive, he'd be writing about Assange. How could you not? The relationship between the individual and the state, between freedom and information, is his, was his subject. And I just feel that sometimes you, you start out, I mean, not knowing where you're going to end up. Certainly with Craig Wright, who re- literally appeared out in a freezing night in London out of a kind of mist. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Mayfair situation, walking towards me saying, I am Satoshi, I've been looking for you. So in the streets? Yeah, we had arranged to meet at this place and he came towards me and I completely, like a ghost stepping out, it was a very misty somehow, you know, it was, it was a cold, cold night and he sort of stepped around the corner out of this mist, like something out of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, my favourite story. And we went into this bar and I saw within minutes, I think, if not within the hour, that this was a man who had worn a mask for so long uh, it seemed to me that he didn't realise the extent to which the mask had eaten into his face. He couldn't take the mask off, although his whole invitation to me was to help him take the mask off. So from the first meeting, and then there was months and months and months of a sort of almost sci-fi sort of chase around London uh, and around the world. And I went to Australia and I went to America and I was trying to home in on these coders who had been with him or been behind him or who'd helped him invent uh, the blockchain and and Bitcoin. And it was an incredibly important feeling story because the blockchain, as the banks all recognize now, is going to change the way we have money, and and well beyond money, the way we deal with our medical records, the way we have insurance, the way we have houses, where we keep our deeds. The blockchain is going to revolutionize our lives. But this man both wanted to emerge from the shadows and was incapable of doing it at the same time. So he was like a person from a Victorian novel to me. You know, I felt completely wrapped in the, the question of character. People keep coming to me with, tell me about the science of it, the, the computer science of it, which is fascinating and we can talk about it. But what really interested me was the character of these people, that they could be at the centre of a problem about selfhood And this guy was determined, he was part of a a financial deal worth a billion dollars to emerge as Satoshi. And he had hundreds of patents ready to go. Patents that were were authored by Satoshi Nakamoto, the great mystery man 
of the internet, that the closer we came to the TV cameras, the lights, the moment, the BBC, the Economist interview, they're all in the room, we're ready to go. And I saw him dissolve, he liquefied before my eyes. And I caught it moment by moment for the reader. But it was like no story. I had read outside of, as it were, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or one of those Victorian novels interested in how personality can be more than one thing at the same time. And I was wondering, you know, reading The Secret Life and the three stories, what's next? Are the next stories lined up? Uh, you know, I was thinking, and obviously other, you know, very big stories of our time. You know, if you think about um, John Brockman keeps telling me about Jennifer Dudenai, you know, this whole idea of actually um, controlling uh, evolution. So there's a lot of things happening in biology. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering what's, what's going to be the next kind of frontier. Well, there's a thing about mutation coming that's going to be absolutely world reorganizing, I think. It's to do with what's happening in genetics and a sense of, back to this question, the central question we've been discussing, about what is a person? It's as basic as that. Is it the DNA that exists already? Is it what you got from your parents? Is it what they got from their parents? The traditional sense of what makes a person? But obviously, we know it's more than that. Moral philosophers have been arguing since Plato about the question of what is a true form? What is a person? What is humanness? And these might seem like ludicrously big questions for the essay or for journalism or for contemporary writing, but I don't think so. I think if you can find the vehicle for these, and there will be the great novel down the road about the impact of the dark web and the, the web itself on what we call, have called society. I know people have been writing about it and people have come up with various things, but the great novel of that, that interaction, that new way of selfhood is still to come. It's the most exciting time to be a writer, I think, but maybe every writer of every generation says that. When I taught creative writing at King's, I used to be mesmerized and disgusted by uh, young would-be writers saying, but I don't know what to write about. I think, are you crazy? You can't get up in the morning and switch on the television without seeing 40 things immediately demanding. We're living in a quite an under-described world, despite, and perhaps because of, the rapidity of the technology and the means we have to record things. But the thinking, the meditation, the selection, the reorganizing, the magicking of the, the experiences people are having into <coughs> writing, into literature. There are multiple open goals now. But I think the business of fundamentally what makes a person and how people are changing, the non-binariness of gender and sexuality, that's a massive, massive thing over the course of my life. I'm in my late 40s and I've gone from the point where a gay kid in school hid the nature of their sexuality all the way through their school life to now where kids, including you know, you know, friends of the 13-year-old that I'm father of, can't wait to tell everybody that one day they're this, the next day they're that. Maybe don't hit me with your 1970s over-defining nonsense. I'm something else. I'll tell you moment by moment what, who, where, why I am. And that's a fantastic modification of the model of, of what we thought that you had a, you had a fixedness and I think all these stories have been, have been about the onslaught of fluidity if you like you know that we're now in a rather sort of exciting period where everybody contains multitudes and we're now facing up to it. That could almost be a great conclusion I have a last question. Anna Maria Rilke wrote this uh, little book a wonderful book The Advice to 
a young poet, and uh, I see you know uh, several young writers here uh, in in the audience. I'm kind of wondering what in 2017 would be your kind of advice to a young writer, to a young novelist, to a young essayist. Ironically, given so many of the things I've written about, it would be get your sand shoes on and get on the bus and go out and report on the world. Don't sit at your computer thinking you can drum up your fantastic essay by virtue of quotation and things you found via Google or things that were reported. Or It isn't about that. It's about looking the subject ultimately in the eye. If you're interested in the humanness factor, then you will go. I mean, in the middle of the night, I like to think that in the middle of that terrible night um, a week ago, when a building was in flames in a terrible and terrifying way in West London, they would have caused one writer maybe to get out of his or her bed, get on their bike, go to West London and stay there and still be there and still be interviewing those people and finding out there's a building that was perhaps a symbol of so much of our political times the person who can write a group biography of, what, of the people who lived in that building, the living and the dead, will write a masterpiece. But when you go there, you find there's lots of news media and there's lots of people taking pictures. But are they looking, are they looking to look those people in the eye, the survivors, their families, their cousins, the people who are in a state of debilitation that this could happen in 2017? Almost 80 people now, we know, perished in a block. If ever there was a subject for a masterpiece, it's right about those lives. Don't sit in front of your computer watching reruns of the fire and thinking you're getting the experience. You're not. Not until you step into company with the grieving and step into company with those politicians who are to some extent responsible for that being allowed to happen in that way. Until you've done all of it and done it again and come back the next day. Until you're like, if I can use my own silly example, standing with that policeman at the end then you've got a chance that in that sort of vacuum of under-description, you'll find the humanness, and that will be the thing to do. That's what I would tell those students. Andrew, thank you so, so much. Mm. And I think we now can take questions. Um. <laughs> interview in Chicago, did you ever tell them that you weren't the author they thought? Well, there was a moment where I thought um, I very boldly tried to twist the conversation around to my book, which, <laughs> uh, which I thought was very bold of me. You know, now I would have said, are you ludicrous? I mean, that's not my book. My book's about, and I would just have killed it in the first sentence. But I was quite young and a bit kind of embarrassed. But I did say, when he said that thing about if you get any advice for the mothers of America, as a 27-year-old guy who didn't even have a girlfriend or a sort of child, I know, I know my advice for the mothers of America was going to be thin, I felt, <laughs> at that point. Even I knew that. <laughs> so uh, I remember saying, well, you know, there's a lot of anxiety uh, around at the moment. And in my book, The Missing, I deal with, you know, I try to... They just ignored that and looked at me very bluely and sort of asked another ludicrous question about this other book. Incredible. The other question, um, your um, invented character, uh, was it Robert Pym you said his name was? Ronald Pym. Ronald Pym, yes. Um, did you ever actually meet any of his real family? Yeah. The piece ends de very deliberately. Um, I'm not spoiling it for any of the, you who will read it later, but part of the journey that I was enacting was 
spun around the notion that I would eventually meet his mother. I was trying to meet his mother all the time. And it was very hard to find his mother, almost reassuringly hard, given that how easy it had been to invent a complete life for this boy. It wasn't actually easy through the usual old-fashioned channels anyway of finding his mother. She'd moved addresses many times. Eventually, I did find that she was still alive. And I went to a, a way out past Grange Hill. It was, a way out, it was one of those mornings. I went very, very early on the central line and there was nobody on it. And the ghostliness of that part of the journey struck me too. That I was trying to find the mother of the boy who inspired this invention of mine. And I was going to tell her. And I ended the piece on the doorstep. But she opens the door and I mention his name. And I remember her eyes going incredibly wide. And she said, Ronald, there was nobody like him. And that, that line was so startling to me, given what I was about to tell her, that I closed the piece with it. Uh, and what happened inside the house is between me and my memoirs. And there is a photo. There's a photo of Ronnie I found online. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a picture. Maybe that, uh, I got a, this special effects guy who works in movies. It's actually based on my face and on two other friends of mine's faces. Sort of two younger guys. It's a composite. I mean, it's a composite face. I wanted it to somehow, because this would be the face that would be on his passports and all the rest of the stuff. And I wanted to increase the strangeness and the depth of connection by making them based on our faces. Um, I wondered about the title of your book, um, The Secret Life. And, uh, you know, I'm an LRB reader and uh, I like essays. Uh, but they're not really getting read by many people. I mean, I think the LRB has less than 100,000. Uh, readers. I, I copied your mail article with its filthy language to 10 people. So if, even if things are copied a lot, people are not read, people are not kind of reading the essay and it's surely going to have a secret life, isn't it? Whereas, for instance, you know, people blogging, mm. um, uh, young people, 18 to 25, the most read things were uh, running up to the election were three blogs that I'd never heard of, mm. and in fact, my 30-year-old children had never heard mm. of them. So it's kind of below the radar. There's a lot of reading going on that people of my generation... I don't, I don't think I agree with that. I mean, I'm strongly of the opinion that uh, the essay's on the rise. I mean, I would say that, but I've witnessed it too. And I don't, I'm not talking about mine. I'm talking about the impact that... You mentioned the LRB. The impact of the LRB over the you know, 25 years that I've known it has become colossal. I mean, single articles are being read by hundreds of thousands of people sometimes. I mean, we have a digital life that is beyond the, the life of the paper copy, that, as you know. And we're living in a different world now. When I first went to the LRB, I was 21, and you know, I think we had 14,000 subscribers, or maybe 10,000. We used to lie to the editor so he wouldn't get depressed, uh, the co-editor, Carmilla. Um, but it was, it was a small paper with, I mean, but with a big influence. Don't you remember, it's quite a complicated thing you're raising because, I mean, the much loved, much quoted, much respected and rather mythical Edinburgh Review under Francis Jeffrey in the 1820s never sold more than 5,000 copies. It's who reads and how they read. And online, we have a digital editor now who um, works brilliantly at disseminating the individual articles, but also articles from the past that may not have been in that form before and that people might love. And I think that it's just a whole new kind of readership and the readership is potentially infinite. So I'm not so trapped as I used to be, I suppose, as we all used to be in this paper sales figures. 
I mean, even paper sales figures have gone up exponentially in that time for a paper like that. It's quite a big ask to read 14 long-form pieces a fortnight, but yet the circulation has gone up and up and up, and the influence online has become, to my mind, wonderful. Might also have to do with the fact that silos kind of are breaking down between knowledge and that it sort of goes into many more fields. And it's interesting, for example, how many people in the visual art fields, you know, read your Satoshi piece and talk, how many artists told me about it. So I think that sort of whole idea of interdisciplinarity kind of, you know, maybe rise to optimism. But I mean, that's one of the great effects of the net, obviously. People can get access to things that, I mean, I, I grew up in a place where you couldn't have bought the London Review, even if you'd all the will and coins at your disposal. I used to go to Glasgow. 25-mile um, journey in the train to try and find such publications. God, I had a sad life. <laughs> <laughs> and you're actually quite optimistic because you, see, you said here in an interview with Alexander recently, which I found online, that you think life is just better because of technology. You say you're not nostalgic for some imagined period of innocent bliss. To quote you, it's just nicer being able to order your carrots online and nicer being able to get information so quickly, which ties in with that. And then you say AI is likely to be the biggest subject to have taken flight during our lifetime. To change human experience and daily life immeasurably, immeasurably in English, I think immeasurably. <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. pronounce it, and I can't wait. So the other day, I, you know, I spoke to them. It has to be and uh, deep mind, and I was kind of thinking about if maybe AI could be a topic for a future book of yours. I'm working on it. Um, I've I've been trying to put feelers into that world for years, and it's now working. I don't know if it's an actual person that I'm dealing with at this point. Um, <laughs> But uh, they're not averse to letting me further in. I mean, I always imagined that writing these pieces would cause people never to want to meet me ever. Uh, And that might still be the case. But um, in the world of AI, all the laws, the fundamentals of philosophy will, will, as it were, have to be revisited in relation to machines. We'll We'll have to make a decision about whether this person or not person who's doing all these things for you and who has a name and who seems to have a personality. That's the thing in the, in the new patents that's extraordinary is they, they are encoding them uh, with personality. So we will all ask, surely, what comes with that in terms of rights? What comes with that in terms of responsibilities? Are we going to be masters over this? We're in the world of H.G. Wells here and some. They're exciting questions. They're frightening. But they're exciting, so I want to get much, much, much deeper into that world and find out just what they think they're making. You mentioned the Victorian kind of multifaceted characters, uh, a la Jekyll and Hyde, that kind of thing, um, and that you're seeing that more nowadays, the people who approach you or who you find interesting. And do you think that these sorts of people have existed in the same volume throughout history? Or do you think that there's some sort of comparison you could draw from sort of the Industrial Revolution and the kind of cyber revolution we're seeing nowadays? I think that's a really interesting question to me. The relationship between the Industrial Revolution and the Cyber Revolution bears quite a lot of thinking about. And if you look, for example, just to pick a very obvious example rather than an obscure one, Charles Dickens' interaction with the railway was, to my mind, fascinating. He looked for the big personalities as, as I think any of us do, you want, you know, what Elliot called the objective correlative. You know, you, you don't want to just find a bunch of people sort of scientifically getting on over there, not, you know, creating a sort of sealed bubble that you can't quite penetrate. You want the big personalities who seem to, in some way, symbolize the effort and the contradictions. You don't just look out for them, they come to you. I mean, eventually you become a kind of magnet for such things if you write in an area long enough. 
Dickens certainly did. And the great panjandrums of the, of, of the steam age sort of sought him out. And he watched the whole fabric of the city, but also the fabric of selfhood change. Because if you lived somewhere in furthest Essex, even in the 1820s, your relationship to knowledge, to print, to money, to commerce was absolutely prescribed by where you lived and how you lived. That distance, proximity was, as it were, the big issue. And he writes brilliantly, Dickens, I think, and so does George Eliot, writes absolutely amazingly, subcutaneously, getting under the human problems of that. What happens to human personality and responsibility when you change the material, the technological basis of their lives? You can look at Maggie Tulliver in the mill and the floors and see that the Tullivers, her and her brother, their whole lives, even long before disaster, are being completely transformed by the material circumstances. And I think, to go back to your question, that that's probably what writers of a certain sort have always looked out for. The long-form essay feasts, and the novel too, feasts on the opportunity to try and get inside the human problem at the centre of change. Have you ever um, been interviewing someone embedded with people and got so uh, close to them that you were worried more about protecting your relationship with them or about them liking you or being friends with them than, than that's worried you when you've then been writing your essay or that has made you not want to, to write about it afterwards? That's a brilliant question because it's very, very... I mean, it goes quite close to the bone because one of my features, I have to admit, is that I do get quite close to them. To be perfectly honest and honour your question, I was like that with Assange. It took me three years to write that essay. And my editor at London Review, Mary Kay Wilmers, uh, was absolutely straightforwardly instructive. Just get on and write that. That's something that you can write and it's, it's time to write it. Before that point, I mean, I looked to her for so much guidance. She's been with me my whole career. Um, and she absolutely told me that get on and write that. And I took it as a kind of three-line whip. And I did it. I mean, I wanted to, and she knew I wanted to, and that I could do it. Well, she thought I could, and I thought I might. And what resulted was, it wasn't easy to publish it because I knew that the person at the centre of that, he only had one currency he really appreciated, and that was loyalty to him. You know, and I don't know if, how many of you have ever been in a relationship like that, but it's not your loyalty to, to each other. His understanding of what goodness is and what friendship means is to be doled out and loyalty to him. So I knew that we would know, it was the end of our friendship and I wrote to him the day that I gave the lecture at the British Museum which began that. It went, the London Review put, it went through the press that night. It was published that night at midnight after the lecture. And I wrote to him that day saying, this is goodbye, because I knew he wouldn't be able to handle whatever champion of truth-telling he was, whatever champion of freedom of expression he was, he wouldn't be able to champion my freedom of expression when it came to him, and I knew that. So that's a spectacular example of what you're talking about, but it comes up a lot where you get quite close to people. If you're working with people for months and you're quite sociable and you like hanging out with people when you get involved with them, then that moment where you step away always feels slightly uh, difficult. Have you ever had interviews which went wrong? You know, I had this experience. I went to see Stanislav Lem in Krakow and interview went well, you know, for like an hour, and then I mentioned Tarkovsky, and uh, he obviously did not appreciate Solaris, 
and it got totally red and you know we were basically thrown out of the house in the snow minus 20 in Krakow so that was really uh, an incident did you ever have I had, a, I had a very uh, a most ridiculous quite comic incident like that with Tom Wolfe the American novelist I was in his apartment once in New York and we were having this nice time and it went on for hours and we sat around and he started talking quite late on in the interview and again this is to the previous questioner uh, will recognize this problem <laughs> I mean, we'd become slightly friendly to the point of, you know, let's have supper sometime kind of friendly. But I kind of backed away from that a bit thinking, you know, I'm going to write this up. This is a piece and he knows that. He invited me in. His novel, A Man in Full, was about to be published. Anyway, just quite late on in the conversation, he started talking about um, black people and started talking about joggers in Central Park and overweight people. And these subjects kind of spewed out of him. I'm sure my eyes widened and I looked at the tape and saw that it was still running and thought, you're dead. <laughs> and I left the apartment. I remember going down to the street and it was like today times 10, walked out into the street, you know, when your face slightly cracks with the heat. And I thought, I was getting on so well with him. He's such an interesting reporter, such a sort of interesting writer. I mean, I've never been a great fan of the novels, but I think he's a fascinating creative force. And I, now he's just blown it so badly and I don't know what to do. I can't hide the last 15 minutes of the interview where he's so out of control. And I really felt that it would have been a dereliction of duty as well as, you know, uh, bad form as a journalist to then secrete that away. Um, so I did put it in the piece. And he then, he then contacted the publication and said he hadn't said that. <laughs> and I then wrote back to him in quite Glaswegian style. <laughs> and said to him, if I heard him deny it one more time, I'd publish the entire tape. <laughs> because actually, he should be grateful that I didn't publish every word of it. But, um, but he denied saying it, which was, I don't think I'd ever heard that before, where somebody denied saying a thing, but he certainly had said it. Uh, just going back to the start of the Ronald Pinn project, um, one of the things about the infiltration stories from the police and other cases is where their own lives, in a sense, are continuing as well. So one of the challenges those people have is the challenges of seepage of memories or of emotions across the two ongoing lives. And I mean, the history of espionage kind of shows a range of ways that people respond to that. So in the PIN essay, I mean, your project was slightly different. And you, you, you evoke the relation between the historical PIN and your PIN very beautifully, but in a sense, your challenge with dealing with you yourself in relation to your created pin is not a, a, a strong focus of that piece. Yeah. So my question is just, well, is, was there more to say about how memories and cognition and affect kind of um, flowed across the lines between yourself and your created pin? Thank you. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think you're setting out to do in a long nonfiction piece, as much as in any piece, I would argue, not to set out a moral programme, but to set up moral arithmetic and let the reader solve it, if you like. That writers who just keep giving you the solution, keep giving you the sum, are badly edited, probably, and they're engaging in bad writing at that point, in my view. Um, the thing to do for the reader is to provide them with all the moral arithmetic and leave it with them. What I tried to do, I don't know to what extent it succeeded or anything, but I certainly tried to give them all the moral problems, you know, almost infinitesimally, and let them go, is this even okay? For example, I mean, I didn't have to tell the story of the real Ronald Pin in that 
just to, just to break it down for you a bit, I didn't have to. I could just have taken the boy's name in the graveyard and written a story about inventing a character on the internet. I needn't have gone to his mother's house. I needn't, but I wanted to engage head on with the moral problem. Otherwise, I was denying myself and the reader the opportunity to see something that they otherwise wouldn't see. I would have made my life a lot easier, I can tell you, if I hadn't written about the real Ronnie Pinn at all and hadn't, in a sense, sullied his real experience by trying to write it up, it would just have sullied it by doing what the police did. I mean, the police didn't go and see their mothers. I did that because I saw it as a kind of opportunity to bring it all back to the reader as a problem, a moral problem that I ultimately was going to get slapped in the face with. I saw that because I'd done basically what the police did in order to say what the police did in full. But I'd gone even further than them by going to see the mother. And the reason I ended the piece on the doorstep was that I wanted to protect her against my experiment. But in actual fact, it allowed the reader to be sitting there knowing that I was going inside that house to confess something. That just seemed to me, it was just a judgment between me and my editor about how, to, how that piece should be. I don't know that one ever can be confident it's absolutely right, but that was the decision we made. My question is about whether or not you can imagine a kind of period where climate change will enter sort of narrative in a way that isn't very depressing. I know it's not really a moral question, but in a way that actually mobilizes people's imagination. <laughs> God, it's a hard one, that, for me, because I'm not that interested in climate change. You're not? No. I mean, I think it's a massive subject, but I don't pretend to be interested in it. I know the right answer is, oh, my God, we're all going to die. But, I mean, I think it's for somebody else, is what I'm saying. And I'd love to be arrested by somebody's brilliant writing on that subject or somebody's, you know, insights into it. I hardly ever read stuff from that quarter that amazes me. And maybe it just needs the writers, but... Uh, I couldn't pretend to you that it's a big hankering of mine. I just don't really understand it that well, and I don't feel that moved by it at this point. So no, un no unrealized projects uh, in relation to that? No. no, not for me. I mean, I think that um, there's so many people who do. I mean, it's like yeah. the biggest subject in the world for so many people, but I think you've got to know your limitations. And if you don't have sufficient empathy, you don't have a natural... I need to have a sort of relationship with these big subjects as probably what I'm trying to tell you, a bit ham-fistedly. You know, I, I need to feel... I mean, I was able to write about those people in The Secret Life because at some level I did have a subjective connection to them, however strange that was, and however sort of unbalanced it might be. It was there. I felt utterly involved with them at the level of my own experience. And that's what's required in order to write about that area, you've got to absolutely feel almost in your DNA that this is massive and you can write. When you choose a subject, it's a bit like love. You know, you can't just sort of halfway go into it. You've got to sort of... I mean, I don't sleep when I'm writing these pieces. I'm completely obsessed with them and, um, you know, I can't fake it. Yeah, I'm thinking actually if there are writers who have made these topics, I mean, the, the, such a strong topic like, for example, Gustav Metzger, because in art, it really is Gustav Metzger's life topic. He, yeah. Even on his deathbed, you know, he said the fight continues. We need to fight climate change. We need to. Fight. I mean, he also said um, that we shouldn't actually only talk about climate change, but we should talk about extinction because mm -hmm. only then people will wake up. And that was I his mean, life. That was his, the, Gustav you know, Metzger's life. Right? I mean, the, 
this, as it were, the, the George Eliot novel that needs to be written or that is being written or has been written about that might be the one that survives, might be the one that people are reading in 100 years. I'm not making a hierarchy of great topics here. You've just got to know what your limitations are. Are you spread yourself so wildly thin? I mean, I cover quite a lot of ground, I think, really. I'm allowed to um, find myself into quite odd situations, but, um, but I want to read that book. I mean, I want somebody to sort of have the imagination to do it. I agree with you, Andrew, about the long-form essay being really precious form and it being, there's being so much to write about now. But I wonder about the economic model with so many magazines, publications, newspapers under huge economic pressure, largely because of the internet advertising models collapsing because of Facebook and Google taking the lion's share and so on. Are there, the LRB is quite, quite an exception, I think, isn't it, in terms of having the money to, to pay for writing like yours? Is there going to be the money there for, for your successes, effectively? I mean, I think it's a question that you could ask about so many of the arts now, actually. Is there going to be the money there? Because my view, I don't mind telling you, of the essay as a form and of literary magazines uh, as a vehicle for such writing would be the same as it was for poetry or opera. Yes, it's really expensive to put on an opera. We should all chip in and make it happen, is my rather simple-minded way of looking at it. I think take bringing a commercial model it's helpful in a day-to-day -day way to try and adhere to commercial norms uh, and publications as far as you can do. But I would add that it's also perhaps a bit of a category error to think that poetry that doesn't make money is no good. Or the essays that can't uh, appear in magazines that make money, or we'd all be writing for Time magazine. It's expensive, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, that, that's, we're talking, we're singing from the same hymn, hymn sheet. It is expensive, just like it's expensive to put on Don Giovanni. Not as expensive, but... You know, but I think, I don't know whether it's 50 million or whatever that the Royal Opera House requires in order to be as good as it arguably is. If you're going to send writers out to report for months and you're going to pay the, the expenses and try and keep them going, then you're talking about a really expensive, it's a really, it's a disastrous economic model for those who want to make money. Put it that way. And everybody knows that. Just as poetry is an absolutely disastrous economy for people who want to make money. But I would say... What we do then, don't we, as enlightened folk or a civilization even, is that we find ways to pay for that. Maybe we get the right advertisers. They help us pay for it. And the London Review's always had advertisements, uh, as well as, you know, had its own source of sponsorship. But the fact is, that is, to me, a glorious norm. Not That, that should be the norm, is what I mean. It's a glorious example rather than a, a weird exception. Um, I think it's... A shame when you look at newspapers at the moment, like The Guardian, having to beg you for money at the end of every article because there isn't any sustaining, or there was sustaining, it's no longer as sustaining income, then you think, it is worth paying for it. Maybe there should be a way of sort of rationalising this because it's being held to an economic model that it's failing. I don't know. I mean, when it comes to young writers, they depend on patronage of a sort and always have done, really. But if publishing houses can make money and pu by publishing great writing, then that's the happiest outcome of all. If magazines can make money and you know, wash their face or pay their bills whilst publishing uh, what they want to publish, then that's fantastic too. But sometimes there's somewhere in between where they're both doing that and uh, enjoying some civilized sponsorship. And I think that's, that's fine. Also, the question kind of leads back to the beginning, you know, the very beginning of the conversation, because when we met 20 years ago, you know, you were in residence. 
and I had just been curator in residence at the, at the Capi Foundation. So I think this idea of residences is, is really key, allowing, you know, people to do research outside from any constraint. Yeah, that and, was uh, really nice because that gives you a period of months, yeah. a young writer investigating something, trying to get it together. You're not born writing pieces, you know, you, you have to learn how to do it and you have to build a relationship with your editor and a relationship hopefully with a publication. I mean, the great example when I was growing up was the relationship some writers had with The New Yorker. Well, some writers, John, John Updike, for example, spent his whole life, yes, writing novels and non-fiction books, but writing pieces for, for the magazine that, that felt like home to him. And it's back to my friend's question, really. If that can happen for you, then it's a happy day. And I've enjoyed many happy days along that way. <laughs> Maybe that's a wonderful conclusion. Andrew, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you, all. Thank, you. thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Hans Ulrich. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>